Hello everyone, my name is Jason Ramirez, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 5 of the Hit List Podcast, a podcast where me and a guest cross off films from our watch list by watching them. I am joined today by Alex Marie, aka Alex Marie Flowers on Instagram. Welcome Alex, thank you so much for being here. Hey Jason, thank you for having me. So Alex is a cosplayer and enjoyer of uh, 1980s pop culture, and as someone who has just recently got into 80s pop culture, she's a welcome guest on this show. And Alex, before we get started into this conversation, I have two important questions for you. So number one, can you tell me more about your streaming viewing habits? Whenever you get, whenever you sit down and watch a movie, do you stick to your favorites or do you watch something new? I usually tend to stick for my favorite, to my favorites, but I'm always down to watch something brand new, especially if it's something that I know that I'll enjoy. I'm that's just the cinephile in me. I'll just I'm open to watching something new. Awesome, awesome. Now, this next question is uh, most important and can make or break your career. There are no wrong answers, but there probably is. So, are you ready? Go. All right. If you could bring back any fashion trend, what would it be? Probably more color. <laughs> A lot more color incorporated into everyday wear because everyone always wears black, white, navy blue. I feel it's nice to see a little bit of color. So, And I'm a big color person, too, so it'd be nice to see a lot more color, a lot more prints incorporated into everyday life. A lot more color. I like that. I like that. Well, the films we're going to be discussing today have color in them. One one of them has more color than the other, but we'll, we'll discuss why. Because <laughs> one of them is in black and white. That's why. Right. <laughs> uh, so here we go. The two films we'll be discussing today are The Hidden Fortress, directed by Akira Kurosawa, and Black Narcissist, directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. The Hidden Fortress is a 1958 Jide Geki adventure film directed by Akira Kurosawa. It tells the story of two peasants who agree to escort a man and a woman across enemy lines in return for gold without knowing that he that he is a general and the woman is a princess. The film stars Toshiro Mufuni as General Makabe Rokurota and Misa Uehara as Princess Yuki. This film was on Alex's list. Alex, why was this movie on your list? This movie was on my list because as a massive Star Wars fan, I wanted to see what the inspirations were for George Lucas's space opera. And I know he had several inspirations, but... I was actually watching a cow- a Cowboy Bebop video and a lot of people were saying, oh, that it was inspired by Star Wars. And then someone said, okay, but Star Wars was actually influenced by a Japanese movie. And then someone said it was inspired by the Hidden Fortress. So I put it on my list and I, w- I was planning to watch it. And then when Jason suggested that we watch something that we haven't seen, I'm like, let's do the Hidden Fortress. Yeah, I, I'm also a huge fan of Akira Kurosawa movies. So watching this was also on my list. So what did you think of it so far? Initial thoughts. Initial thoughts were like, when I was watching it, because I watched it twice, actually. First thought was, oh my goodness, this is basically Star Wars. <laughs> like, a lot of like key inspirations, especially certain scenes, was all basically Star Wars. Any Star Wars fan that watches this will definitely enjoy it, especially if they're familiar with the storylines themselves. Yeah, I I pretty much put the same thing. Like, the first scene is literally the two peasants who apparently are late for a war. <laughs> I even wrote that down in my notes. Like, how are you late for a war? <laughs> it's war. And they're right in the middle of it. Like, literally. And, but yeah, when I saw the interactions, I'm like, and knowing that it's inspiration for Star Wars, I thought it was like the same storyline, but I didn't know it was actually the two characters who eventually were the template for C-3PO and R2-D2. So, I saw that a lot in them. And... 
as well as like whenever you, when you watch it, you kind of realize like some of these storylines were used for later Star Wars movies. So not just the first one, but also in I think episode one. Yeah, Phantom Menace. So they use like the storyline of the general and the princess like trying to like get her to safety. That happens in Phantom Menace, apparently. And the decoy, apparently. Yeah, decoy too. Yeah, I was like, the decoy. a lot of it's like, if you see this, you you, you kind of realize like, huh, does George Lucas have any original idea? <laughs> does he just pull everything together? Like, what? It's one thing to be inspired, Ray, but I feel like this one was definitely one of the, it helped out with the development of Star Wars, not just in... A New Hope, but just every every other storyline in between. And there's little details, too, which do you want to talk about that, Jason, too? Little details in the film, like cinematically. Well, um, real quick, I do want to mention that um, mm-hmm. Western directors taking from Eastern directors is not mm-hmm. uncommon. Um, mm-hmm. I forgot the name of the... But it, it's a Clint Eastwood movie. It's a uh-huh. Western movie. I forgot the name of it. But it's basically the same storyline as Yojimbo. Another uh, Kurosawa movie. Okay. And Sergio Leone, the director, he took the exact same plot and just made it a Western. And apparently he got sued by the company who made Yojimbo saying like, hey, you just plagiarized us. I think I heard about that. I don't remember the name of the movie either. It wasn't Fistful of Dollars, was it? It could be Fistful of Dollars. It's like one of those um, man with no no name uh, movies. Right, 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 right. It's in one of those two for sure. One of those three for sure. Got it. Uh, what other details did you did you mean for me to discuss? There's a lot of details in this movie. <laughs> well, like something that's in almost every Star Wars movie, especially when they're the transitioning of a scene, like the the little slide. Oh yeah, the side <laughs> Just, swipe. If you can call that an e- a Star Wars Easter egg, then yeah. <laughs> when I saw that the first time, I'm like, okay, is this where he got this too? Like, wh- where does he? Where does he get all his ideas? Uh, apparently just this one movie. <laughs> just this one movie. He got all his ideas from just this one movie. Uh, I, there's an article I've been meaning to read as well. I forgot mm-hmm. where it's from. I believe it's called A Pastiche. Star Wars is a pastiche of media, whatever. Mm-hmm. And basically they list out all the influences of Star Wars from like characters from other movies to like other tropes. Hidden Fortress is in there as well. Right. And I'm like, yo... Is this what it takes to be a success, apparently, in postmodern <laughs> postmodern media? Just take other people's ideas and pass it off as your own? And, like, just say you're inspired by it and really just plagiarize the whole stereoboard? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, given the time that it was made, that Star Wars was made, Hidden Fortress was made in 1958. Star Wars came out in 1977. So that's... Almost 20 years. So, like, almost 20 years after it came out. Though. But I feel like a lot of, especially more foreign films, weren't shown as much as they are now, at least in the in the Western world. So, to see it, you yeah. were probably just, like, a like a film student, you know, or basically just someone that's a big film enthusiast. Like, just yeah. studying it and getting inspired. So, coincidentally, that's when um, George Lucas found the movie. Like, that's when he first watched the movie. It was, like, I think it was his first semester of um, college at film school. Mm-hmm. That's when he first learned about it. And he's like, oh, this is pretty good. And <laughs> it's actually because of Star Wars that Hidden Fortress was preserved. Because no one really knew about the movie until, like, Star Wars. And George Lucas said, like, Hidden Fortress was his inspiration. And people sought it out. And then that's why it's preserved. So, right. yeah, like... For all these comments I have about George Lucas, he did have some good things about him, you know? <laughs> He's I. Right. He's I. Right. He's I. Right. Okay. 
I mean, there are other good films that he made too, like definitely like THX 1138. Like that's another good George Lucas film too, that he obviously, he always puts little Easter eggs, like his own work and inspirations in all his Star Wars movies. Cause Star Wars is essentially his, his baby. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I feel like we're, we're still talking about the movie, <laughs> but like not directly about the movie. Yeah. So what were your favorite scenes in this movie? My favorite scene was when, um, when she gets the news that um, it was actually the general sister, I believe, that she was beheaded and she's still putting on a brave face. She's still being a ruler, which is essentially her job. And she takes a moment and she goes outside and you just see tears falling down her eyes. And that's her. It's her own little one. That was actually one of my all time favorite scenes in the movie itself, too, because she's. She's a princess. She still has to be strong for, you know, it's her job to be. And she just had that little moment to cry. And you see the the flag kind of imposed on her face, too. That was one of my favorite scenes. Yeah, that, that was a good scene, too. It was emotional, yeah. My personal favorite was when they're escaping from that prison camp. Because, mm-hmm. like, uh, I saw, like, when, I, when the prisoners, like, fought back, against like their guards i'm like yes fight back rebel (laughs) (laughs) and the one scene i was like really worried about was when they all like stormed down the stairs i'm like yo that is dangerous that is dangerous i forgot how that ended for them but the two peasants they somehow escaped by like not going where everyone else went they went their own way and they just they just hid you know what i mean Yeah. yeah that that's just that's just a lesson for everyone like don't go with the crowd, guys. You know, go your own way. Create your own path, you know? Like <laughs> Work for That's Uber. A one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. And another scene too is also when when they're at that little that little village is and when and when they're selling off a few girls and Princess Yuki takes that one underneath her wing, you know, like she's mm. She's and she ends up being loyal to them and the rest of the group too. I thought that that was that was also a really good scene too. Yeah, I like that too. And the fact that like that girl like even saved her from being um, raped by the two men. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yo, what? That's- she even had like the rock. She was like there like the whole night. She's like ready to hit them with right. it. I'm like, okay, good, good, good. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And also the goodness, there's so many good scenes in that movie too, especially when it, the fire festival too. The fire festival is another mm. good one. Especially when they're, and you could see that Princess Yuki too, as a character, like she's really enjoying herself too. Like she had fun and even, yeah. and she even points that out later in the scene that she had, that she had fun, even though it was like, they were basically running for their for their lives the entire time. She had, she had a good time. Yeah. That's why I saw, noted too. is like, wait, is she having fun? Yeah, she is having fun. Look at her. <laughs> <laughs> so it's basically about a princess escaping mm-hmm. enemy territory. And they get the idea from the two peasants to go into go beyond enemy lines so they can take a shortcut and get back home without needing to interact with like a bunch of people that will basically kill them. And they're mm-hmm. trying to like leave with the goal that they have so they so they can still survive. Um so that the clan can still survive. And the way the mm-hmm. gold is hidden is probably like my favorite part because they hide <laughs> it in the most inconspicuous place ever. They hide it in firewood. <laughs> And it's only, it's only by pure chance that they find out that the two peasants find out that the gold is in the wood, and then that's how the general finds them. Like, and he just takes advantage of their greed. They say greed. I I call it survival. Um, because <laughs> what, what 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 are you gonna do when you're poor? Like, not not eat. Exactly. 
when it comes to different social classes, yeah, it's not greed at all. <laughs> at least from my standpoint, it's not. But yeah, they hit it, the gold in the firewood. And I'm like, that's kind of genius because who's going to check the wood? And <laughs> <laughs> the, the amount of times, too, when you see that it that the gold could possibly be found, you're just like, oh, my God. <laughs> but, like, it was a wild Yeah, this... This movie is a gem for sure. Even for like Star Wars fans and non-Star Wars fans alike, it's definitely a gem worth watching 100%. Definitely. And the part that really got me was they're trying so hard not to get caught at the fire festival, so they just yes. burn the gold. I'm like, right. no! He's like, don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that they had to like actually go back and dig it up from the ashes, I'm like, is that shit not hot? <laughs> <laughs> probably was but when you just see and hear the guards kind of like oh my anxiety <laughs> i think another good part about this movie is that, like every time they're about to get caught they do something that helps them not get caught so <laughs> for one when they cross that initial checkpoint they mm-hmm. leave right yeah and literally two seconds later a guy comes by and says hey we're looking for um three men and a girl and some horses do they just come by here and he's like Oh shit! They did <laughs> just as soon and as then, they left too. And then the next time you see like some soldiers pass by, like because um, they they sold they had to sell the horses to keep up like the the face that like they don't need the horses, you know? Right. They're complaining like, why didn't you? Why did you sell the horses, man? Why did you have to sell the horses? <laughs> now we're here carrying the cart full of wood that's really gold. And soldiers pass by and say, hey, uh, have you seen three men on horses full, filled with wood? Uh, no, we haven't seen them. And they pass by because at that point the other the other lady joined them, and it's like and like yeah we yeah that was a good idea we that's a good idea we sold the horses we had to do it man <laughs> for survival for survival and it's like every time it's like every time like they almost get caught like you can see how narrowly they escape getting caught like by a thread and then they actually eventually do but then they escape you know because it's mm-hmm. it's an adventure story it is they had to get escape it was good it was definitely really good for sure and just the whole theme over like there's i feel like there's a few themes in this actually like obviously too i feel like greed definitely play so-called greed and i put um air quotation marks but greed is a big part of it too because one the two peasants for sure like they're like you said too they're just trying to survive they're just trying to get away from all the which is why they initially want to cross the border in the first place too is because they just want to get away from all this war right that's what's annoying about this movie a little bit the people upper classes like keep calling the peasants like gr- greed, like they're greedy. Yeah, I'm like no, no, they they just <laughs> they they have other priorities, you know. Like <laughs> they don't have your responsibilities to rule a clan. Like what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Any other thoughts you had on this movie? I think that's actually pre- that pretty much sums it up. Like just. I recommend everyone to go see this one. I think this one was, I give this one a 10 out of 10 for me personally. Gotcha. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and talk a little bit more about the production of this movie. So a little bit about Akira Kurosawa. Akira Kurosawa is a Japanese director. He's very influential in the filmmaking space. Growing up, Kurosawa always had an admiration and eventually became a friend of John Ford. And for those of you who don't know, John Ford is an American film director known for his Western films and his frequent use of location shooting and wide shots. So one of, one of the movies I know of for sure that he directed was Stagecoach. And mm-hmm. that has like a like a chase scene. Very similar themes with uh, Hidden Fortress in that they're escaping from people to get somewhere safe. So right. that's a little bit about 
uh, his admiration. And his admiration of John Ford movies is what drove the inspiration behind his films. And Kurosawa was what many people call a Western-oriented director in his filmmaking. And because of this, he wasn't well regarded in Japan. You can see some like some of his influence of like Western stuff by like seeing like the expansive stuff, like the white shots of like the territory. A lot mm-hmm. that's really used a lot in Western movies, and Kurosawa uses a lot in his films as well. And he wasn't very popular in Japan at the time, but he was very popular in the international stage. So Seven Samurai was a huge thing abroad. And George Lucas in an interview with um, Criterion Collection, believes that Kurosawa comes from a generation of filmmakers that was still influenced by silent films. And he used camera techniques to get straight to the point with his films. And you could kind of see this happen in like the first scene when mm-hmm. the two peasants are literally just walking, right? And a samurai just like walks in frame and is murdered immediately by other <laughs> men on horses. <laughs> right, right. It's like straight to the point, like, oh, this is this kind of movie. That's what you're getting into. like. Yeah, just straight onto it. Mm-hmm. And a little bit about the casting. So Misa Uehara, who played um, Princess Yuki, she was a newcomer, and she never acted before. She beat out 4,000 women who auditioned for the role. And because of her lack of experience, Kurosawa would direct her every movement, and she had to learn horseback riding as well. Like, can you imagine that? Like, your first job acting, and it's for a Kurosawa <laughs> film, and he directs your every movement. <laughs> like, okay, now do this. Do that, yeah. No, no, you went like this. You had to go like this. Okay, not like that. Like this. <laughs> That's intimidating. And because she has learned horseback riding, she mentioned that when she's on the horse at the end of the film and pointing in the distance, she was scared of falling off. And she said she was basically trying to stand at the same time, but she couldn't because she was sitting. That's really intimidating. You know, like, you're horseback riding for a movie and you don't know how to horseback ride. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously, too, she she did a good job, too. Like, you couldn't tell that she was nervous. She... Definitely did a good job as Princess Yuki, yeah, for sure. She really carried that presence. And you also said, too, that um, Akira Kurosawa, that he was very intimidating as a director as well, too. Yes. You told me, too, that he was even, um, that even the horses in the movie were intimidated <laughs> by him. Yeah, uh, that's actually what I was getting to next. So as a director, he was known to have a temper and he will scold people on set. And he later got the nickname The Emperor because of this. <laughs> So here are a few examples of, of what why people were like were like kind of afraid of him. He once caught an extra smoking during a take and yelled at the extra for smoking during a take and then at the assistant directors for missing it. And he was so feared by the crew that people tended to avoid situations where they might get scolded by him. And here's an example of someone who like who worked on the film as like one of the camera assistants. He said like uh, he would always get scolded by Kurosawa because he was an idiot and didn't avoid him. <laughs> Jeez, oh my god. One time he was by the lights, and then Kurosawa yelled at him and told him not to worry about it because the actors were just rehearsing and to go do something else. And then he says, okay, good. And then he goes to do something else. And then a few minutes later, literally a few minutes later, Kurosawa saw that the rehearsal was going well and yelled at him, telling him that he was supposed to be by the lights since it's his job. And he's like, what? (laughs) You just told me to leave. And then when he went back, he was adjusting the lights and he he needed to block the light with cardboard so as like filled the scene. And he was in a rush to do it because he just got yelled at. But he didn't know that one of the um, cardboard had like a hole in it because of a screw. 
and it had like a little tiny pinhole on it. Oh no! And then he blocked it right, and he's holding it, and then he heard Kurosawa yelling at him because the light was shining right in his eye, oh, and he's like, yeah. "Oh come on!" <laughs> so he had to like block the light with another piece of cardboard. <laughs> and the thing is, he's doing this all by himself, right? Uh-huh. All of it by himself. But there's supposed to be eight camera assistants. Four for each camera, right? Because there's two cameras, right? And there's supposed to be yeah. eight cameramen, four for each camera. And where were they? They were right behind Kurosawa, away from his eye line, to avoid getting scolded. And then Kurosawa noticed this, and he's like, I mean, he's like, wait a minute. And he yelled at them for not doing any of the work and making the dude do all the work by himself. And oh my god. He's intense. He was intense, yeah. Yeah. And as far as, like, the, the horses, like, yeah, like you said, like, um, when they were being, like, carried away like led to like the stables mm-hmm. they could sense when kurosawa was angry and they'll skirt <laughs> away from him whenever they're walking back to the barn like just as if he was near he'll they'll like oh oh <laughs> just skirt a little way he was an intense director for sure as a question to you is there any other films that you would recommend by akira kurosawa so seven samurai is good but it is a three hour long movie Mm-hmm. So if you don't see it all in one sitting, that's completely understandable. And Yojimbo is good as like a because it's a samurai movie, but it's also like mm-hmm. a comedy. So gotcha. I like that as well. Mm-hmm. And you can see it's it's used as inspiration even for the Mandalorian. Got it. The Ahsoka episode, literally mm-hmm. the exact exact same framing and everything. Got it. Can't think of any more at the moment. Um, I've tried watching Throne of Blood. Mm-hmm. But the opening 20 minutes, like the first 20 minutes, are very slow. And I Thank couldn't you. get past it. So I had to be, I have to be in a certain mood for it. Gotcha. But wait, there's more. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I have a lot more details about the film. Mm-hmm. I, I got all this from a documentary called The Warrior's Camera, the cinema of Akira Kurosawa. And they made several, uh, I wouldn't say episodes, but like several films about other Akira Kurosawa movies. And mm-hmm. this one was specifically about the Hidden Fortress. So as far as like the production of this, this is like his first feature filmed in the widescreen format. And he continued to use this for the next decade. Oh, that do you remember that rice theft scene when like the two peasants steal rice and they're like yes. running for like... Yeah, they were like booking it, yeah. <laughs> so that, that, that scene is only six seconds on screen. But mm-hmm. for, to get that shot, they used a really long dolly to shoot it. And I saw, like, oh the track. God. It looked like a... It's, like, really long just for six seconds. I was like, wow. Wow. It's just, like, the photo that I saw of it, I'm like, just for six seconds. It's amazing. And as far as, like, the chase scenes with the horses... Mm-hmm. So, um, Kurosawa learned this from also from John Ford. What he noticed is that, like, when horses run in Western movies, they always kick up dust, and it looks right. like they're going faster than they really are, Right. Like, it indicates, mm-hmm. like, it, you can see that it can indicate speed when they kick up right. the dust. So, it re- the scenes required dust. And, unfortunately, they couldn't get that in Japan. So, what they did is they created dust from wood, like, from wood particles to make the horses look like they were galloping fast. And the scene that was where the samurai, um, the general went to go kill the soldiers because they were going to go snitch. Mm-hmm. Um... <laughs> So that scene took a lot out of them because it was shot with telephoto lens. Right. Um, telephoto lens and it had pan shots. So they were panning from like the left to the right. Gotcha. And the cameras were mounted on dollies also for this effect because Kurosawa didn't like using a zoom function. 
And the fact that like, um, um, for those of you who don't know, telephoto lens is exactly what it sounds like. It kind of is like a telescope lens. Mm-hmm. It's just to see like a little farther. But because of this, you kind of, if you want to shoot like other stuff, like that scene to like track that shot, it will take a lot out of you because you like are narrow. It's a very narrow shot. It's not a wide shot. You can't see all of it. It's a very narrow shot. And it has like, leave it on there, locked on. And they're being pulled back on a dolly. And they're like moving with the actor. And yeah, I had two cameras. And they did it on two different days because the guy who was on one camera messed up and they couldn't see anything on that. I'm like, oh. yo. <laughs> that you you had literally had one job and you fucked that up. And I was like, <laughs> that's a really, you, you're what, the camera guy? And you fucked up being a camera guy? <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> but if you watch it again, you'll see like it. It's not zoomed in. It's just that's how it's shot. And mm-hmm. the thing is with also with Kurosawa films, everything's in deep focus, right? Right. It's not. It's not like a movies um, today where like only some things are in focus and like the rest of the background's out of focus. Everything's in focus to fill, and in the frame you see everything. And because of this, you need a great a great deal of lighting for this. All the details you see, it's because of lighting. He really lit this scenes up. Gotcha. Alright, do you want to hear about the stuntman who almost died on scene? Or yes, do you want to hear definitely. about the... Sh- yes, let's <laughs> definitely hear about, hear about the stuntman <laughs> that almost got killed on the job. <laughs> Those are always good. <laughs> okay, so this one's about the samurai who got killed literally in the first few minutes of the film. Oh Alright, so... The first few minutes of the film, the samurai like walks in and is killed by the soldiers, right? Mm-hmm. So to get ready for that, they had to like fill up his armor because he's getting like hit with the spears, right? He had to fill up his armor of like actual stuff and he had like a wig on because he mm-hmm. was like bald. He wasn't mm-hmm. bald, but like his character was bald, right? right? And it had like a copper lining on it. Mm-hmm. So the spears weren't real. They had like this thing, they had like a spring in them. So like when it hit him, it'll like... Bounce back, Going, right? It'll yeah. bounce back. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But it still hurt. <laughs> it still hurt. Right. Him, right, yeah, I can imagine, yeah. So, like, he's getting stabbed by it. Stabbed, I say with quotes. And yeah. a, the horses are, like, very close to him. They're very close to him, right? And they run back, and he's, like, acting. He acts dead, right? And then mm-hmm. they run back, very close to his body. And he's on his head, on his, like, side. And then he, he feels like a thump. And then oh. he's... <laughs> All of a sudden, he's on his side. Like, he was on his back, and now he's on his side. And he realizes uh, a horse's hoof foot hit him in the head. <laughs> and I... that's how uh, he was moved to his side. He He's like, I wasn't told that the horse was going to hit me in the face. And it hit me in the head. But it did. <laughs> it did. Oh, no. And the fact that, like, his wig had a copper lining. And no. that's what saved him. Because if it was aluminum, like it was later on, like in later productions, he wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to tell the story again. And you see this in the film. <laughs> that was the one. That was the first take. They only did it in one take. And I'm not sure if you, if you go go back and watch it, you see like it's not like a big movement. But if you know if you know like the force of like a, a horse and the weight of a horse and the fact mm-hmm. that it hit him on the head, hit. it's like. Boom. <laughs> I was like. Damn! Poor guy. He almost died. <laughs> Poor guy. And the wig saved him, like you said, too. So. The wig saved him. <laughs> that that would have been, like, a, maybe a minor concussion, but <laughs> he almost died on the job. Poor guy. Right. So, 
And then he wants, and then Kurosawa wants to do another take. And he's like, nope. what? Nope. <laughs> and nope. here's the thing: like they took off the armor off him, but they, he don't want them to take him off because he was wearing talismans for good luck. Mm-hmm. And then they fell off, and he felt embarrassed about it. And I'm like, no, bro, you almost got died. <laughs> you almost died for the job. <laughs> Don't be embarrassed because of the talismans. That's commitment. That is commitment. One last thing I'm going to talk about is the fog. So, you notice the fog in the movie? Yeah, a lot of it. It's all real. It's literally not a fog machine. It's a real fog because they shot on Mount Fuji, right? And there was so much fog. It became such a nuisance because sometimes they they needed scenes where it wasn't foggy. Mm -hmm. And so, from what I heard from like the documentary, the wind goes around the mountain, right? And so whenever whenever there was a break in the in the fog, they'll shoot right then. They had to do this uh, strategically, so they had people posted on different parts of the mountain, and they had people radio like, "Hey, um, there's a break in the clouds right now, and it's for like two minutes." And they're like, "Okay," so then people on the other side of the mountain would know when to get when to get set up immediately. <laughs> so there's this part in the movie where the peasants are walking with like other people who escaped from like the prison, mm-hmm. and then. It's like really foggy, you can't see anything, and then the fog clears, and they have to run away because the soldiers come coming to shoot at them. That's exactly how they planned it. Oh, <laughs> like my they God. planned it because of that. So they had to plan around the fog. Yeah, because like that fog looked really dense too, and I'm like, okay, good mm-hmm. job, Kurosawa. But it it was real. It was definitely real. Definitely real. And that whole like little setup that you mentioned too, like they were like, okay, like like hey, there's no more fog here. Okay, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> And now a word from our sponsors. Now back to the show. Black Narcissus is a 1947 British psychological drama film written, produced, and directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. Based on the 1939 novel of Ru- by Rumor Godden, the film revolves around the growing tensions within a small convent of Angelican nuns who are trying to establish a school and hospital in the old palace of an Indian Raja at the top of an isolated mountain above a fertile valley in the Himalayas. The palace has ancient Indian erotic paintings on its walls and is run by the agent of the Indian general who owns it, a handsome middle-aged Englishman who is a source of sexual attraction for the nuns. The film stars Deborah Kerr, Kathleen Byron, David Farrar, and Sabu. This film was on Jason's list. Jason, why was this movie on your list? So, it's kind of crazy how this movie ended up on my list. All right, let's hear it. Um, I, I, I heard about this movie. I actually seen one screenshot of this movie. Mm-hmm. And it's the one where, like, one of the sisters is, like, ringing the bell. Mm-hmm. And, oh, she's overlooking, like, that valley, right? I remember seeing that somewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't know when, but that's kind of how, how, like, entered my radar. And then, um, I guess recently it came into my list because I'm on Letterboxd, which is a social media site for people who leave, like, film reviews, right? And people will have different lists or whatever for, like, films. And, and then some of these lists are, like, kind of, like, the names of them are, like, really silly. So I saw that this one's list was listed under a movie called, under a movie list called, um, Things went wrong because I got horny. <laughs> <laughs> and that was like one of the like the first few. I'm like, you know what? <laughs> I think that's enough for me to watch it. That's enough for me to watch oh it. <laughs> Things went wrong because I got horny. <laughs> Done. It may not be the exact name of the list, but that's basically the gist of what the list the was. The gist of it, yeah. I've seen some other movies on the list too. I'm like, yep, that's basically the premise of the whole plot. Mm-hmm. They got they, Things went wrong because they got horny. Right. 
That's why it was on my list. Okay. <laughs> what did you think of it? Like in general, just the whole plot, the color, the storyline. So I, I'm surprised I actually liked it. I I enjoyed myself watching this film because I I've said this before in like in other episodes. Mm-hmm. Like I never saw myself watching this type of movie when I was younger. I always saw myself watching like newer stuff or like action adventure stuff, comedy. Mm-hmm. And now I'm watching stuff that's not really aimed towards that genre, aimed towards that audience. I'm watching more thought-provoking stuff. And I really liked it. I liked the actors in it, and I liked the colors. It was very a very colorful movie. I really liked it. Yeah. Yeah, and when did this one come out? 1947, right? Yeah. Yeah, because Technicolor wasn't used in all films at the time, too. A lot of films were still in black and white. A good amount of them, yeah. Not a lot, but like a good amount of them were, though. Yeah, and I saw the... Um... I saw somewhere, I was reading more about research about this movie afterwards, that they were some audiences who gasped when they saw the flowers on screen because they'd never been, mm-hmm. been able to see flowers so colorful because of other movies that didn't have... It, it just wasn't as colorful back then. Mm-hmm. So they gasped when they saw the flowers. I'm like, oh, that's really nice to hear. Like, the flowers, they looked really nice. They I like that. They did, yeah. Just the whole backdrop of the Himalayas was really gorgeous, too. And you could... It's weird, but, like, you can kind of tell, like... Because there's no heat, like the plumbing system in the in the comet where they're at, it's it's freezing, and you could tell that it. You could I don't know why, but you could tell that it just looks so freezing there, especially during the nighttime too. I was to say with the with the sound effect of the wind blowing, I feel like that's just what makes the the whole setting and the storyline more true. And sound, I feel, definitely plays a big part in how like we're watching a movie and how we feel when we watch it. Yeah, that's exactly what I was gonna say too. Like the sound effects of the wind mm-hmm. is what really sold it, and the fact that like it's stone right right (laughs) it's all stone there's no carpet there's no no rugs nothing to cover up nothing for insulation it's just all all rock all right what was your favorite scene in the movie (laughs) i love this scene because it's the most realistic scene okay go when um i forgot her name too i I forget names in general but like when that one nun left the chapel to go see that man yeah the englishman Mm And she tells him, she tells him that she loves yeah. him, and he's like, "What?" His reaction is like, "I've never talked to you before. <laughs> We've never <laughs> spoken before." Just his reaction was like, his eyes went wide. Like he's like, oh, "Where is this from? Where did this come from?" Yeah, like you can, woman, you can tell he was like completely taken aback by the whole thing. Like I said, it's the most realistic reaction I've ever seen in a movie. Like someone being told that they, they're that they're loved. Like, I love someone being told, like, I love you by someone that they've never interacted with before. Like, like huh? I don't even know you. <laughs> <laughs> you tell me I mean saying you love me? We've never spoken. We've only had one conversation together. That's it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's probably my favorite scene. And I don't think anything can top that <laughs> in that film. That's it. That's your favorite scene. <laughs> that's my favorite scene. Like... My second favorite is when he shows up to, like, that Christmas celebration drunk and just, like, sings really loudly and obnoxiously. Yeah. Basically anything with him in there. Yeah, just because he's just so obnoxious and so rude. Around these nuns, yeah. Yeah, he's, like, he even questions, like, why are they there in the first place? Like, he's just there doing his job for his employer and providing for them whenever they need it. But that's literally it. He's only providing for them because he has to, not because he wants to. Right, right. And I, I'm going to guess that this, um, that the Englishman's your favorite character in this entire movie. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like, uh, he was rude. I'll mention that. He was insufferable rash but yeah. like in a way that like 
Yeah, but like in a way that like they kind of needed that, you know, because they're they're inseparable in their own way as well, mm-hmm. and so they needed like that dynamic of like that contrast, to that them. balance. That's what they needed for this movie. What about you? What was your favorite scene? Uh, there's a few favorite scenes of mine actually. I like just mostly like cinematic shots too. I feel like it's also when like when they arrive there at the convent and South just getting settled and you just see like the chaos running around to like because it's a dispensary and it's also a school too so there's they have a whole lot of things going on at once and you could tell that the head that the sister superior she obviously can't handle it but she's holding herself together that she can handle it because it's because mm-hmm. it's what she has to do and i feel like it's because you know it's that's her will you know what I mean? that's what she's that's what she was assigned to do and I feel like that's a le- that's just the nature of a nun in general, that their faith keeps them going, even through the most difficult situations. Because a lot of the situations that they endured while they're at the convent, it was, it was a lot. And another one, too, is especially when um, Conchi, who's played by uh, Gene Simmons, arrives. You just see the whole entire, like, just the energy when she arrives there. You could tell she obviously doesn't want to be there, too, but she just goes in and she's just... Just her whole attitude in general. I just, I love that scene. Like you said, like, it, what they went through was really difficult. Some of the scenes that really uh, struck at me was um, when the sister, the one who was obsessed with the Englishman, she really needed professional help for her mental health. Yeah. And um, being there wasn't helping her at all. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it, it was too late before they could really do something for her. Like, it was, she was, like, beyond helping at that point. Yeah. And... When when she fell off like the cliff, I I got really sad for her. Like um, it was a really sad moment it was. because it's like she just needed help and that's all she needed. And another scene that really upset me was when um the sister tried to help that baby, but they were told early on in the movie if they encounter a patient who can't be saved by them, to not help them at yeah. all because then like the whole village will lose faith in them. Mm-hmm. And and then like. They didn't really think too much of it until, like... When it actually came, yeah. Yeah, it's a baby. And being told that you can't, you couldn't do anything for them because then, like, the whole the whole village would lose faith in you. Mm-hmm. Like, you'll want to help the baby. And when the baby dies uh, because the medicine doesn't help, they just lose faith in the whole... All the sisters and just don't even show up anymore. Right. So... That that also upset me. Like doing your best to help someone, and having people losing faith in you for trying to help, mm-hmm. and it doesn't help. Yeah, that that like just the amount of like you can actually see too, like the the amount of pressure too that the nuns were going through too, like just through each situation, whether if it was with school or just with the dispensary itself. You just they were all doing their best, but in the end, too, like if that one slip up too, like you said with the baby, they they just they stopped putting their faith in the nuns, so to speak. One other scene I liked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wrote this on my notes. I put, I wrote an abridged version of it. Uh-huh. Um, the sister, the sister superior is like saying this to I think her name is Sister Ruth. Mm-hmm. She's like, "You're horny for Mister Dean, <laughs> no you. <gasps> How dare you!" And it was like it was implied. Like they never confirmed or deny it. You know what I mean? That sister superior like. There's tension, obviously, like, between the two. Like, there is definitely some tension, for sure. Yeah, and I'm like, yo, what? Like, <laughs> but, like, that was basically the British version I wrote right there. Like, you're horny for Mr. Dean. What? No, you! you. <gasps> How dare you! <laughs> but, yeah, another aspect I liked about this film was the ponies. <laughs> they don't use horses. They use ponies. Right. And, like, just seeing, like, grown men on these ponies, especially, like, Mr. Dean. I think that's his name. Yeah, Mr. Dean. On it, I'm like, yo, that that's a grown-ass man on a pony. <laughs> like, I'm so, I'm sorry for the pony. Like, that's a lot of strain on his back. 
It's ironic. Both films that we're discussing, horses and ponies had to go through so much stress in this, in both movies. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I do want to give like a quick analysis of this film. Mm-hmm. So Black Narcissist was released only a few months before India achieved independence from Britain mm-hmm. in August 1947. And film critic Dave Kerr has suggested that the final images of the film as the nuns abandoned the Himalayas and proceed down the mountain, could have been interpreted by British viewers in 1947 as a, quote, a last farewell to their fading empire, end quote. He suggested that for the filmmakers, it is not an image of defeat, but of a respectful, rational retreat from something that England never owned or nor understood. Hmm. So I want to say respectful retreat or rational. Like, why, why are you in India, fam? Huh? Why are you in <laughs> like- India? You don't know them. You don't know them. They don't know you. Why are you in India? <laughs> Get the fuck out. <laughs> Get the fuck out. <laughs> Leave. <laughs> we don't want you here. You got your curry. Get out. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten more hip to the colonization. I'm like, huh. Why, why are there a bunch of independence days around the world? <laughs> Hey, Britain, do you guys have an independent state? No, no, we don't. Um, we never had that privilege. The honor of being conquered so far. Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that's just a quick analysis mm-hmm. that I got from that. Nice. So as far as like development of the, the film, it was adapted from writer Rumor Gordon's 1939 novel of the same name. Mm-hmm. And Michael Powell was introduced to the novel by actress Mary Morris who had appeared in The Thief of Baghdad in 1940, and an early film he did with Emmerich Kressberger, The Spy in Black, which was released in 1939. So the film was shot primarily at Pinewood Studios, but some scenes were shot in Leonard Slee Gardens West Sussex, uh, the home of an Indian Army retiree, which had appropriate trees and plants for the Indian setting. While Powell at the time had known for his love of location shooting, with Black Narcissus, he became fascinated with the idea of filming as much in studio as possible. Which kind of makes sense because you can't really shoot in the Himalayas. Yeah, no. That's kind of like an unnecessary added stress. But like I mentioned earlier too, like especially with the whole, like the way it looked so convincing too. Like it convinced me that they were definitely up in the Himalayas too because like yeah. the whole setting and like the like the sound effects that, that were used and you could just, they did a good job with it. They did a really good job. The crew did a really good job with that. Definitely. And one of the factors as to why it looks so convincing is because of the matte you paintings. They did a lot of so that back in. So they had, oh, go ahead. Go, I was going to say with most um, movies that have matte paintings, like you could tell like you're just think, dang, like that looks so real. And then I'm like, no, nope, it's <laughs> just a painting. But they they definitely did um, a good job with the painting as well as making it seem convincing to the audience, like because it convinced me for sure. Mm-hmm. Definitely, they they were really good with it, mm-hmm. and I think also being shot in film is also another factor into it right. because it's not like I want to say it's not high definition. It still looks very clear mm-hmm. in in definition. Oh yeah, but they kind of made use of like the graininess of the film as well. Mm-hmm. It looked just looked very convincing, and so they used a lot of matte paintings and large scale landscape paintings for this. To suggest, like, it, it's in the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. And Powell said later, quote, Our mountains were p- painted on glass. We decided to do the whole thing in the studio. And that's the way we managed to maintain color control at the very end. Sometimes in a film, mm-hmm. its theme or its color are more important than the plot. End quote. Well, mm-hmm. I can disagree. To, I, I can agree to disagree. Yeah, I can. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm just thinking, like, um, maybe not. <laughs> but he... he 
he cared about the color in the film, which makes which I can respect. I can respect. He, yeah. he did a good job on that. And like you said, too, color played a, a huge part in this movie too, for sure. And as far as like the costumes, um, Alfred Jung probably said his name wrong. <laughs> the, he was the art director. Had three main color schemes. So the mm-hmm. nuns were always in the white robes. They had heavy material because it stressed like the nuns' otherworldliness amid the exotic mm-hmm. native surroundings. The chief native characters were robed in brilliant colors, particularly the generals in jewels and rich silks. And other native characters brought into the film for the atmosphere were clad in more somber colors with the usual native dress of the Nepalese, um, Bhutanese, and Tibetan peoples toned down to prevent the overloading the eye with the brilliance. Yeah, that's part of why it's like really good because like they made sure different characters had different color schemes according to like their role in the film. I like that. And as far as like the climactic sequence, here's a little fun trivia for you. So there was some personal behind the scenes tension because Deborah Kerr was the director's ex-lover and Byron oh. was his current one. And he later wrote, um, it was a situation not uncommon in show business, I was told, but it was new to me. So can you imagine that? <laughs> a director's girlfriend and ex-girlfriend are supposed to like murder each other for a film and you're directing them. <laughs> That's a whole other kind of drama. <laughs> oh, man. I, I, that's like... First of all, the fact that they're both on the same film, right? And now you directed throughout the whole movie and now they had to kill each other. Like One of them has to kill the other. And then like oh man yeah that's some <laughs> that's hilarious thinking about it yeah so as far as like the release and critical response to it in the united states the catholic national legion of decency the fact that the decency really um they condemned the film as quote an affront to religion and religious life end quote for characterizing it as an escape for the abnormal the neurotic and the frustrated the version of the film originally shown in the United States has scenes depicting flashbacks of Sister Clodagh's life before becoming a nun edited out at the behest of the Legion of Decency. And I'm like, okay, okay so they made the character less interesting then. Like, <laughs> they were just flashbacks. Yeah. <laughs> they are just flashbacks, man. Yeah. Like, what, do you, not have, do you not have a life before you became a nun? What? Seriously. Huh. I, and I, was, I forgot to include that, that those scenes were like where it shows the flashbacks of her life in Ireland, like, those were actually some of my favorite scenes because... You can see, okay, like this is why she is what she is. It's called character develop, like a little sense of character development. You know what I mean? I really like them, mm-hmm. but I do have uh, I have to mention like some other things that didn't age well with the film. It was fucked up then, it's still fucked up now. How they refer to the native people as primitive and that they think like children, right? Yeah, it's annoying. It's like uh, early, it's like early anthropology apparently of that. Like they view people who live native people who live in the land that they conquer that they colonize as primitive because they don't live the same way that they do it's it's annoying and the other part that really messed me up was like sabu was the only indian in the film who played an indian yeah literally the only like there's like an indian general and then like there's the indian teenager both played by british people and sabu is the only one who's indian who actually plays an indian not to mention Kanchi too by gene simmons too that's just her in, in full makeup yes yeah so that's um that didn't age well like nope it, it was wrong for them to do that then uh it's still wrong for them to do that now and the extras were actually like cast from the docks like they were like people who were actually from the area who like mm-hmm. lived in like london they were like working as like like people who work on the docks you know import export stuff yeah but, yeah that kind of messed me up when i saw like are you serious like you can't have nothing <laughs> <laughs> and i forgot which movie it was but 
there was an adaptation of Othello back in like, you know, 1950s, maybe a little bit earlier, maybe a little later. And for those of you who know Othello, it's about a black man, right? Right. It's about a black man uh, who marries a white woman in Italy and then they go to Cyprus, whatever, and then bullshit happens and all that nonsense. Mm-hmm. Othello's about a black man, right? And in this adaptation, they put a white man in blackface to play Othello. I'm like, why? And from what I understand, too, like during the golden age of Hollywood, like I believe it was at the Academy Awards, I think in 1940, that was the year Gone with the Wind won. And mm-hmm. Hattie McDaniel wasn't even invited. And he, she was nominated. Wow. Like, that's some bull right there. I remember hearing about that, like... Just this country, like you, you'll learn about, you hear about a tradition, like, hey, why do we do that? Oh, it's because of racism. <laughs> it's like Thanksgiving just happened. Why does Thanksgiving happen? Because of racism. Yeah, it's just annoying. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, your final thoughts on this movie? So, I think it's a necessary movie to watch. Like, despite its flaws, despite that some of the aspects did not age well, both in the fact that, like white men playing indigenous people. Or being put in brown face and black face and being racist towards um, native people. I do think it's a necessary, necessary movie to watch, both as like an audience and also as a filmmaker, because they make right. great use of like the lighting to tone down to so you can know what what type of tone it is. You know, they make great use of lighting, great use of set design, and the blocking is also it also makes sense. Everything about this movie is like a masterclass on how to make a film. Just from like everything that's put into this movie. It's just an amazing effort by everyone involved in this movie. So I like this movie despite its flaws because it's just a great movie. Yeah, definitely. Even though like like you said too, like there's some parts to while watching it too, especially with um, the indigenous people. I couldn't help but feel a little uncomfortable too, considering that that was something that they should not be doing and they shouldn't be doing it today in... In movies, but it they told the story and it was good. So that's the end of our discussion here, folks. Alex, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate you coming on to the show today. Yeah, for sure. And thank you for having me on. It was it was a lot of fun. Thank you, thank you. So I'm gonna ask you one last question before we go. Were the movies a hit or a miss with you? I'd say that they were a hit, for sure. Yeah, same here, same here. I, I'm very glad I got to see both movies. And for Black Narcissus, I actually made use of Canopy for the first time. Like, oh, so right now I see what Canopy is for. <laughs> it's a media service, by the way, guys. We, we, we discussed this on the podcast before. So if you're not hip, well, now you are. <laughs> Alex, before we go, where can we find you on social media? Um, you can follow me on my Instagram. That's at Alex Marie Flowers, all lowercase, all one word, and Marie with two E's. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Ramirez, and you've been listening to the Hit List Podcast. And until next time, cross off a new film from your list. Thank you for listening to the Hit List Podcast. If you like this episode, please consider giving us five stars and leaving a review. It really does help. You can also follow us on Facebook at The Hit List Podcast and Instagram at the underscore hit list underscore podcast. 